This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Your Bibles to Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. And today we're continuing with our series on Advent. And, uh, and so today we are, we are looking um, at Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2. And, uh, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 11. This text is one of those great Christmas texts. As, as during this series, we're looking at the incarnation. We're, we're looking at what it meant for, for God to become a human being. For Jesus to make that journey from heaven to earth. And, and we're, I'm calling this message from glory to glory. Because it begins in glory as Jesus enjoys his pre-incarnate glory with the Father before the foundation of the world, humbles himself, empties himself, becomes a human being, and once again is exalted to glory. It's from glory to glory. Just one of the great texts of, of Christmas. Philippians 2, and let's look this morning at verses 1 through 11. Paul is the author of Philippians, and he says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so, Father, we pray that you would take this majestic text about Christ the nature of Christ, what he did in becoming human for us so we celebrated Christmas, that you would take it and help us to understand it. And, and as we're going to see in this text, this was written for a very practical purpose. And so we pray that you might help us to apply this in our lives and our relationships and our families and and, and where we work, and where we go to school, and uh, in our community, and in our church. We pray that you would help us to put it into our community by your Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Well, for the past few weeks, our, our nation, as you know, has seen a great deal of, of, uh, of racial strife. And in the midst of, of all of this, uh, many people harken back to uh, 1992 and those terrible riots in Los Angeles. And the words of Rodney King... Uh, 
who, when the cameras came before him in 1992, as the riots raged in Los Angeles, made the statement, can't we all just get along? And Rodney King really was voicing sort of a frustration and a puzzle. And, and the puzzle is this. We as human beings are made for relationships, and yet we find relationships so difficult. Not just relationships among races, but the relationships among nations, or relationships in the Congress, as we've seen recently, uh, relationships in, in, commun in communities, relationships in, in places where we work, uh, relationships in, in families, um, and, and even, uh, we can, even relationships in, in churches, because churches are made up of people, <laughs> and people are sinners. And, and really, lurking behind this particular text in Philippians, which has the soaring theology, was a very practical issue that the Apostle Paul was dealing with in that church. And, and, and he, 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 you can, it's implicit here in chapter 2, but in chapter 4 it, it becomes very explicit. He, he says in Philippians 4.2, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syndicate to agree the Lord. These two women were leaders in the church at Philippi and they weren't getting along. There was... Uh, there, there was conflict. And he says, I, I want you to get it together. I want you to agree in, in the Lord. Um, and so that's kind of what he's addressing here in chapter 2. He doesn't say it explicitly, but that's really what's in the background as he exhorts the Philippians to be of the same mind. And the reason he's saying that is because they weren't all of the same mind um, at that point. And so... This text, which is really just one of the greatest texts about the nature of Christ and the Incarnation, has a very practical application about relationships and humility and about unity in relationships. So let's look at three things this morning. We're going to see the sickness, and then we're going to see a, a picture of health, what health looks like, and then we're going to see the cure, which is looking to... Jesus, adopting his mindset. Let's first of all um, see the, uh, the, the sickness. You know, when people are having uh, problems in relationship, they, they usually look in the wrong place for solutions. Because a lot of times we can blame the other person, you know, or we can look at sort of uh, outside forces. But really, the problem is not out there. The problem is in here. It's a problem with the heart. Um, God says in, in, in Jeremiah... Uh, 7 and verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Um, and then in James, chapter 4 and verse 1, James says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? The problem is in the heart. And so Paul here in verse 3 gets right to the heart of the problem. He says in verse 3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Now, the word that he uses here for conceit, the Greek word is a combination. It's a combination word of, uh, uh, it's, it's uh, kenodoxia is the word. Okay, the first part of that word, keno, means empty. And then doxa which is where we get the word doxology. That means glory. Okay, so kenodoxia, it, uh, 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 empty glory. We're, we're, in other words, we are, we are 
we have this glory hunger in our lives. It's part of our fallen nature. Is this, this longing for this longing for honor, this longing for glory, this, this, this hunger to be uh, for, for honor and respect and to be applauded and acclaimed by others. Okay, that, that's pride. That's, that's conceit. We've got this, this, this glory, this glory hunger, this yearning for, for glory. How do we spot that? And that causes all kinds of problems in relationships. How do we spot it? How do we detect it in our own lives? Because it can be very subtle. Um, how can we spot it? Well, the great pastor and theologian, Jonathan Edwards, uh, said there, there are four kind of marks to help us spot conceit or pride in our hearts. One is drivenness. Now, there's a good kind of drivenness where you just love something. You love it for itself, and maybe you just, you know, you just love what you do, or you, you love a hobby that you're involved in or whatever, and, and, and you can be just as happy when somebody else is succeeding in it. Um, and that's a, that's a pure kind of drivenness. That's the, that's, the, that's the good kind, is when you can rejoice when others are succeeding a, as well. I, I love to, uh, to hunt and fish. Um, but I, I've noticed something about me, and that is that um, when the people that I'm with, if they uh, catch something nice or, or kill something that's really nice, I'm just as happy uh, as I would be if I had killed it or caught it um, uh, myself. Today, very significant day, in the life of our church, but suppose it was another church um, that was celebrating something like this on this day. Could we be happy for them? Well, if we, if we couldn't, that would be a mark of pride or conceit. C.S. Lewis said this in Mere Christianity, great chapter there on pride. Lewis said that, that pride um, does, does not take joy in, in having something, only in having more than the next person. Okay, that's that's that bad kind of, of, of drivenness. It's the mark of pride. Uh, scornfulness is another indication of pride or conceit. Putting others down, ridiculing others. Why would we feel the need to do that? It's, it's because we feel insecure about, about ourselves. It's, it's so that we, can, we can, can, can prop ourselves up. Willfulness is another way that we can spot this. Do you have a hard time admitting when you're wrong? <laughs> is it difficult for you to take advice? Or correction? Do you have a tendency to always think that you're right? Okay, this is, again, this is a way that we can spot pride or conceit in our hearts, that kind of willfulness. And then self-consciousness. Now, usually when we think of prideful people, we think of braggarts, you know, people that are just go around and they puff their chest out and they're kind of overtly cocky and that kind of thing. But, but that's, and that is a form of pride, obviously. But, you know, when, when, if, we're, if we're like extremely uh, shy and insecure and just don't, don't want to be seen and everything, that too is a mark of pride because it's all about us. That, that, uh, that desire not to be seen and to be is, is, is also kind of a, it's a self-focus. See, here's the thing. Uh, to, to some degree, all of us, all of us have this. All, all of us uh, deal with, with pride and conceit um, because it's just part of the fall. It's part of our brokenness. It's, it's, part, it's because of the effects of sin that have entered the world. So we, we all deal with this sickness to, to one degree or another. But then, in verses 2 through 4, Paul gives us a picture of health. In verses 2 through 4, uh, he, he paints this beautiful vision of what relationships 
could be, and should be. Let's look at verses 2 through 4, this, this vision, this picture of health. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Wow. Is this not the kind of community that we want to live in? (laughs) Is this not the kind of uh, place that we would want to work, where people relate to each other, or the kind of place we want to go to school, um, or, you know, just the kind of family we want to live in, or church family that we want to be a part of? it, It would be like heaven on earth. And that really points us to the cure, because he says the way that we move toward this vision that we see in verses 2 through 4, which is kind of this picture of heaven on earth, the way that we move toward that picture is by looking to the one who came from heaven to earth, the Lord Jesus. And so beginning in verse 5, he gives us this majestic portrait of Christ. The cure for this sickness is looking to Jesus. So, Paul says in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The cure is adopting the mindset of Christ. So what do we learn about Christ in verses 6 through 11? Well, first of all, we see that as God, he emptied himself. Verses 6 and 7, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Now, what Paul says here, that Jesus, um, Jesus took, the, took the, though he was in the form of God, he is not saying there that Jesus was uh, sort of like God, but not really God. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the opposite of that, in fact. Because the word here for form, when he says that Jesus was in the form of God, you know what it means? It means that Jesus was in his very nature. God. He revealed who God was in his very nature. Jesus was in very nature God. And then, in verse 7, when he says that, that Jesus emptied himself, he does not mean that he emptied himself of his divinity. He does not mean that, that, that Jesus stopped being God for a while when he became a human being. He didn't empty himself of his divinity. He, he emptied himself of his, his glory, that, that pre-incarnate glory that he had enjoyed with the Father from before the foundation of the world. He emptied himself of that. As we, we heard earlier in that beautiful song, Humble King, he, 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 gave, he gave up his his glory. He emptied himself of that, of that glory. Not his divinity, but much of his, his pre-incarnate glory he emptied himself of that. Now, now listen, this is really, this is really, uh, this is really cool, but in, in verse 3, remember we talked about conceit, and we talked about that word, uh, kenodoxia, okay? So, so the first part of that, keno, is, means empty, Paul uses the same word here. 
uh, when he, in verse 7, when he talks about what Jesus did for us. He emptied himself. Now this is the irony. The irony is that we try to fill ourselves up. You know, we seek glory. We, we hunger for that glory and that honor and respect and acclaim and all of that. And we, we try to fill ourselves up with that and we end up empty. Jesus emptied himself of glory. Why? So that we can be full. That's how we get full. Not by seeking that glory ourselves, but, but when we find our security in just knowing that we are beloved children of God, then you don't have that glory hunger anymore. Um, because you're, you're content and your security comes just, just from knowing that you're in Christ. Just from knowing that you are a beloved child of God. So Jesus emptied himself so that we could be full. So as God, he emptied himself, and then as man, he humbled himself. Verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. His humility began with the very circumstances of his birth, carried on throughout his earthly life, and was ultimately seen in the way that he died. Jesus was born to a poor couple so lacking in, in power and influence and connections that they couldn't even find a room for this young pregnant girl to give birth. And then Jesus, as an adult, said that often the, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. But his humility is ultimately seen in the way that he died, because Jesus died in a way that was so humiliating that it was considered to be a curse. Crucifixion was, anybody who was crucified was considered to be, to be cursed, which was exactly the point, exactly the point, because what was Jesus doing on the cross? He was taking our curse upon himself. He was taking the curse that we deserved. As Paul says in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. As man, he humbled himself. Third, as the risen one, he is exalted. Verses 9-11, through 11, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now notice the shift in language here. Because it says that Jesus emptied himself. Jesus humbled himself. It's Jesus taking that initiative. He humbles himself. He empties himself. But now we see a shift, and it's the Father who exalts him. And this is so important for us to see because our tendency is to exalt ourselves. <laughs> our tendency is, is, to, is to, 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 to prop ourselves up. But Jesus shows us by his life and tells us in his words that the way up is down. As Jesus says in Luke 14, 11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled 
and he who humbles himself will be exalted. There's a story about a young man who was going to climb a mountain uh, located adjacent to a, a, a town, a rural part of Britain. And so uh, he goes into the town, he's talking to these townspeople and everything, tells them he's going to climb the mountain that day, and, and the townspeople say, okay, but just be prepared, okay? Uh, it's harder than you think. I mean, you need lots of provisions, take lots of provisions with you, 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 know, you really need to make some preparations, the weather's worse than you think, all, all that. He's cocksure of himself, you know, he blows off the townspeople, you know, and doesn't listen to them. And he, and he goes out just so sure of himself, starts up the mountain. A couple hours later, he kind of slunk back into the town, you know, very, very meekly. And uh, he, he, he hadn't even made it halfway up the mountain. And uh, the townspeople saw what had happened. Old lady said to him, she said, young man, if you had gone up the way that you came down, <laughs> you would have come down the way that you went up. Everyone who exalts himself will be humble, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now that brings us to some applications from this text. I want us to see three of them this morning. One thing that we get from this text is to seek God's glory, not yours. You know, a day like today in the life of our church could be a temptation for, for us to, to, to be puffed up. You know, about something that we've done, something that, that we have achieved. Kind of like the people who built the Tower of Babel. You know, they build this tower, and, and what do they say? They, they, they stated explicitly what their motivation was in building it. They said, let us make what? Let us make a name for ourselves. That's not our purpose <laughs> in this renovation, okay? Our purpose is not to make a name for ourselves. Our purpose is to put ourselves in a position as a church to be able to make more of the name of Jesus. Not to us, O oh Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. See, God's glory, not yours. Um, here's something else. Another application from this text. Always be aware that something bigger than you is at stake. This section on unity really does not begin in chapter 2. You know, in the original Greek Bible, there are no chapter divisions or anything like that. This, this section really begins in chapter 1 and verse 27. And Paul says there, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. In other words, what Paul is telling them, telling us, is that the, what enables us to put our own personal stuff, our own personal agendas and preferences and uh, opinions about lesser things and all that, what enables us to, to, to put that aside is to focus on something higher, grander. And what is it? It's the gospel. It's the cause of Christ. It's the, it's the gospel that is at stake in our lives as, as believers Every day when you go out and, and, and do life, you represent Christ. The gospel is at stake. As a church family, it's the gospel that's at stake. Everything else has to take a back seat to the gospel. It, that's what we have to keep primary. You know, and, and, and obviously, you know, we, can, we can advance the gospel when we're together. That's, really, that's exactly what he's saying to, to the Philippians and to us here. I was able to go to a, a Broadway play um, in the past year. First one I've been to 
And this particular one was at a, in a theater in the round. And so um, very intimate little theater. And there were like four different entrances where uh, the actors and actresses were, were going on and off stage. And it was amazing throughout the course of this play. I mean, it was just like this swirl of activity that was going back and forth. Uh, actors going, going in and, and out constantly and just showing up at just the perfect time. And it was like all the, all the cogs and parts of this finely tuned machine were just working together in harmony. Imagine if, 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 if one of the actors had, had said, well, you know what, I'm not going to pursue the script. You know, I'm going to depart from that today. <laughs> I'm going to pursue my own, my own agenda here. I mean, the whole, the, the whole thing would have fallen apart. It worked because everybody was working together on this, this grand vision, on the, on the whole. And that's what Paul is saying here. Our, our, our vision, our whole, what, what binds us together is the gospel. The gospel. Something bigger than you is at stake. Something bigger than, than personal issues or opinions or anything else is at stake in our lives as believers, in our lives as a church. That's the advance of the gospel of Christ. Always be aware of that. Third application from this text. The key to humility and unity, and the unity that comes from it, is to take our eyes off of ourselves and put them on Christ. And this text tells us who he is. When we take our eyes off of us and we put them on Jesus, who do we see? We see a God who doesn't use his power and glory to his advantage. He doesn't grasp or cling to it. What does he do? He lays it aside. He humbles himself. He, he, he empties himself. Why? It's for us. He's looking not to his interest, his own self-protection, his own comfort. He's laying all of that aside to be born as a human being. The most humble circumstances imaginable to live his life as a servant and then to, to, to die the most humiliating kind of death. I mean, it boggles the mind. Why, Jesus? For us. It was all for us. It was all for our rescue. Time Magazine, uh, just in this, this latest issue, named their annual person of the year. And sometimes my mind is boggled by time selection as their person of the year, but, but, but not this year. I think they made a great choice this year. Their selection this year as person of the year was actually not just one person. It was a group of persons, the Ebola fighters. And... Time went on to state in the article about why they selected these men and women to be their person of the year. For tireless acts of courage and mercy. For buying the world time to strengthen its defenses. For the risk they took and the lives they saved. The Ebola fighters are Time's 2014 person of the year. And the article went on to, to name some of these men and women by name, and, and most of them were not only evangelical Christians, <laughs> but they were they're missionaries. They're people who were in these countries before Ebola ever showed up. And they'll be in these countries after the press has left. 
Why would people do that? I mean, why would anybody leave America, the comforts and security of America, to go and, and live their lives in impoverished, dangerous, disease-ridden parts of the world? Why? Some commentators asked that question when some of these people began to get Ebola themselves. Namely, Ann Coulter, who said they should have stayed home. Don't go to places like that. Stay in America. I wonder if she would say that if she had been born in one of those countries. I wonder if she'd say that if she was sick. The point of this text is that we were sick, every one of us. Not only sick, but dying. And God loved us so much that he left the glory of heaven, came to this dark, dangerous, disease-ridden planet. And not only that, Jesus took our sickness upon himself so that we can be healed. Took our death upon himself so that we could live rose from the dead so that there could be a death of death for those who trust Him. And one day, every knee will bow. Every knee in this room will bow. Every knee on this planet will bow before this exalted Christ. And that will either be the greatest moment of your life if you've trusted Him as your Savior on this earth, because you're going to be bowing before your Savior. Or it will be the worst moment of your life because you're going to be bowing before your judge. Christ invites you to know Him as Savior if you don't already. That can be the greatest moment of your life. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for anyone here today who is without that saving relationship with Christ. I pray that your spirit would move in their hearts today to, to turn to Jesus in repentance and faith, to turn from trying to do life apart from him and to turn to him in trust in his finished work on their behalf. Father, as we think about the meaning of Christmas, help us to, to remember the incredible love that you have shown us, that that love might flow out to others, to people that we know and to people that we've not yet met, that we might be a part of this greatest cause on earth, the gospel, as we pray, as we give, as we go, that all people would know Jesus. And we pray it in his name. Amen. So we prepare to sing the song of invitation. If you're here today and God's speaking to you about knowing him, you want to know more, maybe you've got questions going to be here at the front. We'll be here afterward. We, 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 we don't want you to go away without your questions being answered. If you're here today and God's speaking to you and you say, I, 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 want, to, I want to be part of the, of the process of becoming a member of this church family, we want to invite you to step out and to come today as we welcome you. Let's stand together as we sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and 
everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin. But I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, To all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as His beloved child, His very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving Father, and you are His child. You say, I love Him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through His Word, through prayer, and through His people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to Him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where His love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I could help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together. Thank you.